Our scripture reading for today is from Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in him, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. Avery is homesick this morning, and she's going to be so mad at me when she finds out uh, what I preached on. Uh, She didn't know, but uh, anyway. Do you struggle to uh, receive compliments? Anybody? (laughs) Uh, Someone here the other day uh, gave me a compliment, and I totally wasn't ready for it. It totally threw me off guard, and uh, I didn't know how to respond, and I I just kind of stammered, and anyway— but it got me thinking about other, other famous responses. Um, and so let me just preface what's about to happen by saying, I, I'm, a, I'm a Star Wars nerd. You know, some use the word geek, some use the word nerd. There's a debate on, anyway. I have been my whole life. Like, I grew up with Star Wars. Uh, it's just kind of been a part of, of my whole entire life, I guess you could say. And, and I, I didn't really know it when we started dating, but I'm also married a Star Wars fanatic. Um, and, and one of our proudest achievements as parents is that we were able to pass this love of Star Wars onto our kids. I, I have to tell you that uh, both Tristan and Avery are way bigger Star Wars fans uh, than we are. Um, Avery, I, I bet there's probably not a person in this room who knows more than Avery. I'm just telling you, like, she's gone crazy with this stuff. But uh, like, we're kind of closet fanatics. Like, I try not to be super obnoxious with it and uh, whatever, but, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon and responses, like this montage of videos you're about to watch, were just, they're just too perfect not to use. So I apologize if you're one of those hate Star Wars people, but I, I just want to show you a couple of, of responses uh, in life that I think, I hope you'll appreciate. Uh, the first one is probably one of the top, I don't know, five or ten movie lines in history. You probably already know what it is if you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, let's go ahead and watch that first one. I love you. I know. <laughs> I mean, there's is there more of a Han Solo moment than that one, right? His, his dying moments and Princess Leia declares his love for him. And what does he say? I know. I know. I just, what a great moment of movie history right there. I know. Okay, this next one is great too. It's not quite as famous. Uh, but it's great to me because it kind of turns the tables on things. Uh, you'll see Leia get a little revenge here. Just a little quick one, just a little quick one. But again, she kind of gets her revenge on him. Uh, He declares his love for her, and she says, yeah, I know. I already knew. So 
Okay, and then this third one I've got to show you has, has grown on me in recent years as I've kind of learned to appreciate episode three. So again, if you're into the Star Wars world, a lot of people hated episode three when it first came out. It's starting to, maybe it was a little bit uh, unappreciated at first. But so this, this is a scene between a husband and a wife. They're secretly husband and wife. Uh, they're the parents of Princess Leia. So watch this one. Love you. Liar! So, there's an alternate response to somebody telling you that they love you, is to scream at them and call them a liar. So, um, this morning we're going to look at the book of Malachi. Uh, we're going to see a declaration from God and then a response. And we will see that we all have a choice in how we respond. We will... Uh, Will we respond like Han Solo or, or even Leia later on? Or will we respond like Anakin? So let's pray together as we go to study God's word. Father, would you use your word to speak to us this morning? Help us to hear. Help us to know your truth. Open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we made it. There was about halfway through, I was even starting to doubt myself if we were going to make it or not. We are finally in the last book of this Minor Prophet series, book 12 of 12. Um, and it's been tough, obviously, if you've, you know, been going through this with us. There, there's a lot of difficult passages and stuff like that. It's, it's been difficult preparing messages through some of the Minor Prophets. But, but I hope that you've been able to see... Um, that God's word is the same, that his character is the same, that his plan of salvation is the same. His desire to love his people and to show mercy is, is, is evident through all of Scripture, including these, these 12 books. But, but as we close this series up, maybe just let me give you a quick recap of, of the Old Testament to kind of remember where we are in history, because I don't, I don't want us to forget kind of the, the context because this is, this is the wrapping up, not just of the Minor Prophets, but it's also the Old Testament. So, so we'll just kind of hit this real, real quickly. Remember, the God, Israelites were God's uh, chosen people. Uh, and that started, we, I guess you could say, we, we see it starting with Abraham, where he says, hey, I'm going to you know, follow me. I'm going to make you the father of this great nation, and they're going to be my people. And we get to Isaac, and then we get to Jacob, uh, who, is, who is called Israel, right? That's his other name, Israel. And Israel's sons, he's got 12 of them, they, they make a mess, right? And, and they hate on their brother, they send Joseph away, and, and then Joseph's going to end up kind of helping them all escape this famine as they go to Egypt. But in Egypt, they get enslaved because they become too successful. And then God raises up a deliverer in Moses, and so they get led uh, out of Egypt, and they go through the wilderness and the desert. And then they are given the law. And ultimately, they are heading into the promised land. There's some detours, obviously, you know, through, through some of that. And once they get into the land, what happens? He says, don't forget. Don't forget what I did. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. And they say, we won't forget God. And what happens? They're like, they get one step into the promised land, and they forget. And they start to worship other gods. They start to worship other things. And it takes us into the book of, like, the book of Judges. Um, and... and Things start to go really bad. Um, and, and God eventually, through all, through all their mess, he's going to eventually send 
uh, David to kind of be this redeemer king for them. And uh, things go well, and they seem like they're remembering again. And then what happens after David? We're going to forget all over again. We're just going to keep doing this over and over and over. And so eventually the kingdom is gone. And, and, and we have been studying through all of that. Jerusalem's destroyed in 586 B.C. And, and they're sent to Babylon. They go into exile. And, but there's, there's a hinting through these minor prophets. Hey, I'm not done. You're going to come back. The, the, a new thing is coming. Right? And, we, and we got to see uh, some of that. God enables them. Uh, to return, and with the help of guys like Ezra and Nehemiah, the law is going to be reestablished, the temple is rebuilt, but yet again, they turn from God and embrace the world around them. And so God's going to send Malachi, uh, and you can kind of see if you, the very bottom right, the last little box there is Malachi. And so chronologically, he's our last prophet. He's in the you know, probably 430 is the date most people give this, this last book in there somewhere. Um, you can kind of see, see where we are in, in history. If you remember, uh, Mike preached a couple of weeks ago about Haggai and Zechariah. And, and they were in the midst of kind of rebuilding Jerusalem and working on the temple. And, and, and they were kind of dealing with hope, but there's also maybe some disappointment and all of that that's happening. But the Jews are excited. They finally got to come home. They've lived most of their lives as prisoners, and, and here they are now back in Jerusalem, and they're kind of ready to get rolling. They're ready to be a strong, powerful nation again, and, and you know, somebody in the line of David's going to take over. Here we go, God. We're ready. And what happens? There, 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 there's time. <laughs> it doesn't happen like they thought it would. You know, if you, if you think about the, uh, the, the temple being finished in 516 B.C., we're around 430. We're about 75 years after. You know, 100 years, you could say, into the return. They've been back for 100 years. And no nation, no walls, no army, no, none of the things that they thought should have been happening right now. And so it's fair to say that after 100 years of waiting, the excitement has worn off. The Jews are disappointed, and we would just say disillusioned. The things have not turned out the way they thought. They, they tried to behave their best so that things could, could go, and then didn't happen. Well, well, well God, what's going on now? And, and there's just a little bit of disappointment in this situation. They, they recognize the temple is, is really actually not that nice. It wasn't built, it wasn't Solomon's temple, right? It was a rebuilt kind of JV version of the temple. It wasn't the one they were really hoping for. It's, it's, it's deteriorating a little bit. We're still ruled by a foreign kingdom of evil people. What God, what are you doing with us? And, and so it, it's fair to say that complacency has just set in with them. In their disappointment, there's just some complacency. They're, they're not on fire for God. Their hearts aren't near Him. They're just going through motions. Some not even going through the motions at all. They've just stopped caring. And, and this even goes to worship in the temple and the priests. Nobody is doing what they should be doing. And, and so that kind of is their setting for Malachi. And Malachi is, is similar to what we saw last week in Habakkuk, where there's sort of a back and forth dialogue between God. And this time it's his people, not just one. But um, 
in, in this book, Malachi will sort of speak for the attitude of the people, if that makes sense. You'll, you'll understand it as we go. But, um, and then he's going to tell them, hey, and this is how God's responding to your, you know, bad attitudes and, and questioning of him. And so uh, the name Malachi means messenger. There are some folks who have thought that Malachi wasn't a real person, he, or that's not his name. He's just the messenger. Um, most scholars think he was a guy. He just happened to also be named the messenger. Uh, that was just his actual name. Um, and so we, we would also agree that, that God has in mind for this to be the last message and what we would call the Old Testament. This is the last message the people of God are going to get before he starts to send the Messiah. They didn't know it was going to be 400 years, but this is, this is kind of the final note, the final message from God. And so God is, is in this book going to set the record straight in terms of his disapproval of their behavior and their attitudes. And so I want to look at those conversations, and then I'm going to close with my favorite part of the book. So I'm going to save what I kind of feel like is the best for last, and just, just I want you to look at kind of some of the key themes of the book as we go through it. And so the first, the first big theme where God is, is angry with his people is this. He says that the people have offered, God, God, have offered him polluted sacrifices— Polluted sacrifices. So we can just say kind of in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, before there was the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, there was an elaborate sacrificial system. And if you've read much of like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you understand it. It's a tedious system. It's, it's hard for, it would be hard for anyone to follow. But there were specifications of all the different kinds of sacrifices and when and where and how and what they should look like. And, and, and just the simplest way to say it is that God wanted people to give their best. God wanted people to give their best and sacrificially to show how much God meant to them. And, and so this sacrifice, it communed, communicated devotion to God. And, and so we see places like uh, Leviticus 22.20. It says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, blemish, for it will not be acceptable. In other words, God is kind of saying, don't, don't give me your scraps. I don't want your leftovers. If I am your God and I am your king... Don't you think I deserve your best? And that's what, that's what worship of me should look like. And so what we see in Malachi 1.6, God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And if I am then a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? O priest who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? So they're responding. God's frustrated with them, and, and he says, you've despised my name. They said, well, how have we done that? And he says, by po- offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By, by saying that the Lord's temple may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept that or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And so that last statement there, that verse 8 is important. God is basically saying, look, what you are giving me is, is pathetic, and you know it would never even be ex- accepted by a human governor. Why would you bring it to me if you know it's not acceptable for him? Aren't you showing where, where your devotion lies? He, he, he's saying, look, you, you have more respect for this human governor of the Persian Empire than you have for your God. 
And, and so in this kind of main point, I'm going to also include uh, what he says in chapter 3 where they, he says, look, you've been robbing me. And they say, how have we robbed you? And he says, well, you've been withholding your tithes. You've been, you've been withholding from me. Right? They're not giving as they should. And, and, and God is essentially saying, look, if your hearts were right, you would not be withholding from me. They've been giving God less, less than their best, and God says that is, that is unacceptable. So that's kind of the first snapshot. And, and we can say, how do we do this today? Right? Do, do we say things like, oh, I'm too busy to serve right now, or I'm too busy to help that person in need? Right? If, I, if I had time in my day, I would read your word, Lord. If I had time in my day, I would pray. Right? That's kind of the same idea, right? Are you giving God your leftovers? Is that what he wants from us? Is, well, maybe if I, can, if I have a few extra minutes, God, I can, I can give those to you. But the rest of my day is for me. But I'll give you a few things if I can find the time. It doesn't, doesn't sound like honor or worship, does it? Okay, the second thing. It says the people, uh, the people sin against one another. And, and, and there's all different kinds of ways throughout the book where they've been mistreated, um, such as, you know, not showing justice, not helping others in need. And we've seen that through some of these other books. But he, he highlights one uh, in, in chapter 2, um, in, and I'm going to look at, at verse 13. But basically it's the unfaithfulness of Israel's men to their wives. He says, this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, well, why does he not? Meaning, why does he not accept our offerings anymore? And God's answer is this. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithful, sorry, faithless to the wife of your youth. So basically we could just say a, a lot of the men at this point have become culturally acceptable to move on from your first wife. That's, that's what's happening here. The, the men in their kind of sinful complacency have decided, hey, I, I'm going to ditch this wife. I'm going to find another one. I'm going to chase someone else. And so they disregarded the covenant, God says, that they had made between their wives. They had moved out or sent them away and sent them and their their children away even. And and we can see what happens here. We know what happens here. It it, it perpetuates this terrible cycle where, uh, you know, broken men make broken families and, and it makes, that makes a broken culture, which then produces more broken people. It's just a cycle that's not supposed to be. And, and I do have to say, I think part of the, the role of the church is to, is to help families, is, is for us to help make godly men and women, godly husbands and wives that learn how to love each other well and love their families. We should be doing that here, understanding that God is displeased when we're not faithful. Okay, two more snapshots I want to get through as we're working through this Malachi piece. It, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the, Lord, wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? And the answer is, is by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? 
in, in other words, the people were so backwards and complacent that they saw reality upside down. They were so used to the brokenness around them. They, they had seen evil things left in their minds unpunished. And so they said, well, God doesn't care anymore. There's no right or wrong. None of it matters. You, as our society would say, you just do you. Whatever you want to do, you do it. And it's fine. You just stay in your lane, mind your own business. You do you. It does, God doesn't even care about that anymore. And, and that's the culture that's happening. Does it sound familiar? Because it's where you and I live today as well. You know, we, we can sympathize kind of with this situation. When, when we see things going wrong in the world, sometimes we just get complacent in that and think, well, none of this matters anymore. Or, or maybe we start to doubt God in the process. The justice isn't happening the way I think it should and the way, when I think it should, uh, it must not care. Or there must not be a God. One of those, Right? And so then you have a culture that thinks, let's just do whatever we want. God doesn't care. Fourth thing. Uh, the, the people think that God is just a, a big waste of time. Uh, Malachi 3.14, it says, You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the, prop, the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You see what they're saying here? They're thinking to, to serve God, to trust God, to do what God says, that whole category, everything to deal with, with God, it's really just a big waste of time. What good does it do? What do we get from it? Our lives don't look any better, so why not just cut it all out and save us the, save us the hassle, save us the time? And I think sometimes in our lives, like, we, we want things to be different or, you know, we desire good changes. Or, but but it, sometimes that goes slow or it, goes, it takes too long. Maybe it just feels like we're wasting our time. How does it profit us? And, and maybe you can say that's, that's, that boils down to the essence of the question, right? What, what's in it for me? And, and, and I, you and I have probably all been there. We are, you know, in this kind of settled, complacent, sinful state. So many, so, so there's confusion and things are backwards. And we wonder, is, is this even worth it? Right? If you look at uh, Christian church involvement and any, you can just, in the last 10 years, the, the, this is what the data shows, right? That people just have decided really following God isn't that worth it anymore. It's not worth it. There are things better in my life to do than dealing, spending my time on God's stuff or him himself. And, and I, you know, if, as I think about that, I think it really boils down to, like, what feels more real in our lives. Right? Why, why would people offer better sacrifices to their governor than they would to their God? Well, because he feels more real. It feels more relevant. It feels like there's more in it for us to get the, 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 the today benefit of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the governor happy. That's more real than making God happy. That's, that's the more important thing, right? Why, why, do, we, why do they care about their rela- or not care about their relationships in terms of it, how it deals with God? Because the here and now is more real. It matters. Right? My today happiness is, is more important than, than, than anything else. It's, it's more real. And, and so, 
you know, C.S. Lewis always used to say, like, you find time to do the things that you really want to do. We all eat every day. Why? Because it's really important to us. We are all busy, but we still find time in our busy days to eat, right? And that's just one example that Lewis would love to give. We always love, we find time to do the things that we want to do. And so we do the things that really matter to us. And so when we, we give God this much, what are, what are we showing? How are we living? And, and we're all guilty of this. And this is kind of the core of, of what this is about. Where is your heart in terms of him? Is, this, is there a return? That's what he's asking for in Malachi. And, and so in this kind of complacency, in this disillusion and disappointment, I would say that people are looking for a response from God. They're looking for an answer. Unless God steps in and does something, nothing's going to change. And I think that's what he does here in Malachi. Many scholars say that if you look at the setting of Malachi, it's probably the one that's most like where we are today. Um, and, and, you know, the similarities of, of modern times. They're Jews who have, you know, kind of in the process of trying to be faithful, kind of, but the culture around them doesn't see it as important, so why should we? You know, we really thought God was going to come a long time ago, but he hasn't. And Christians are saying, well, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus, are you really coming back, or was that just a lie? So maybe I should focus on things that are more real in my face. Does it matter if I tolerate sin and evil? Do I really need to fight this battle every day of righteousness? Is it just easier to go with the flow and like everybody else around us? So we decide, I'm just going to take care of myself. And that, and that means I give less to God in terms of time and talents and money and heart and all the things. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to inconvenience myself. Because where is God? Because it just doesn't feel like it's that important. I just need to take care of me, right? And maybe you're hearing this theme over and over again. It's the same theme. When we turn selfish, we, we want God to serve us. And our hearts are backwards. So I think if we were to examine ourselves, if, if, if we sat down and we would be struggling with these same sins that Israel was at this point in time in the 400s B.C. I disillusioned a little bit. Other things have taken priority. Our hearts aren't where they ought to be. And if you ask me, I would say, I think it boils down to one word. You probably already know. It's love. It boils down to love. And so I, I told you I was going to save kind of the amazing part to the end. The, the, um, and, and so I guess we're here now, right? The, the, the section that we've been in is, is the Minor Prophets. And we did it in a different order than it is actually listed in uh, the Bible. The Minor Prophets starts with the book of Hosea, which we did, I think, week three. But, but that's how the Minor Prophets starts, and it ends with Malachi. So it, your bookends of the Minor Prophets are, are, are Hosea and Malachi. Do you guys remember how the book of Hosea starts? Do you remember how that starts? It, it starts with, with God doing and saying something incredible to show his love for his people. Remember, he says, you've been unfaithful, but I'm going to show my faithfulness. And, and he says, look, there's this, you know, here's the prophet Hosea, and I'm going to have him marry this woman, Gomer, and her, you know, all, many different ways of, in, of an unfaithfulness. 
And he says, isn't this a shocking relationship? Guess what? You're not Hosea. You're Gomer. I'm Hosea. I'm the faithful one. Look at my love for you despite your infidelity, despite your sin. The first bookend of the, of the Minor Prophets is God's unbelievable, incredible love in the face of our unfaithfulness. And so now to Malachi. How does Malachi start? Well, that's our passage this morning that I want you to look at. So if you've already turned there, we're in Malachi. It's right before Matthew. So if you can get to Matthew, just like flip back a page or two. Look at Malachi chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the start of the book. That's the bookend of the minor prophets. I've loved you. I have loved you. And everything in between is there. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then, like we would ask in the same probably breath as what just happened here, it says, but you say, how have you loved us? Doubting the love of God. How have you loved us? And here's God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, it's not a love letter in the same way you and I would respond. He's demonstrating his unfailing love. Even both Jacob and Esau were rebellious, right? Both Israel and Edom are rebellious. And he says, look, I'm showing my faithfulness and love to you. Compare it to all these other nations that don't exist anymore. You want to know how I love you? You're still around, aren't you? That's proof of my love. Edom doesn't get to say that. So, but it's love. Love is the answer here. All of the warnings and the destruction, all of the stuff in the 12 books that we have seen, it's surrounded and encompassed and threaded together with love. And and I'll just have to say, it's not some fingers crossed, hopeful, God, kind of passive, sitting on the sidelines kind of love. It's a powerful, active, initiative-taking love on God's behalf. And he makes promises in every one of the 12 books that gives us a a peek into how great his love is and what he's going to do about it. What is he going to do about his love? And and so in Malachi, there are several promises of of God. And he says, look, I am going to restore the glory of the temple. Now, he's meaning Jesus. He's meaning the Messiah. Later on, that promise is going to be fulfilled. But he says, I'm, I'm going to restore. It's going to be greater than you ever understood the temple to be. Way better. Way better than the temple. And then we also see, he's going to say that, he says, I'm going to send Elijah, who's going to prepare the way th- for the Messiah. And we know that that's John the Baptist, right? The second coming of Elijah is John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And so those are the promises we see. And and, and in every one of these 12 books, we've seen God focus on being in a right relationship with his people. He wants us to be right with him. He wants us to be in a faithful, loving relationship. 
And guess what? We keep messing it up over and over. And, and, and it's so interesting to be on this side of Scripture, isn't it? It's, you know, we read about these, these sinful people in Jerusalem, and we're like, you guys just got back. What's the matter with you? Why can't you? Right? And we think of the Israelites grumbling in the desert. Well, you just got through the Red Sea. What's the matter with you people? And he would say, God would say, yep, just like you. Right? We do the exact same things every day. Luckily, it's not written in Scripture. Our, our mistakes aren't written out for all to see for thousands of years. But we do the same things, and it boils down to love. Will God get tired of us? Will God wash his hands of us and say, you know what? That's enough. I've shown you enough mercy. I've had it. No more. Does God ever say that? No. And that's why I'm so glad the minor prophets are here. Because we are them too. He says, I'm, I'm never going to get tired of you. I'm always going to stay faithful, even in your unfaithfulness. You know, our Old Testament, our, sorry, New Testament passage we read was Ephesians 2. And, and, and we spent some time on that this spring. And, and the big idea was we were sinners, we were dead, but God. Right? God made us alive through Christ because of his love. We were dead. We were as, as dead in sin as a person could be. No hope but God. He didn't give up on his people. He sent Jesus instead. I, I think it's amazing when you study Jacob and Israel, they did nothing. Jacob did nothing over Esau to say, well, he was the one that God should love. No, he just chose to love him. The same with Israel, and he says it multiple times through Scripture. Not because you were a great nation, not because you were big and mighty, but in fact because you were the smallest. That's part of why I loved you, to show who I am. God chose to love. And and so the good news of God choosing to love is that he's not going to stop choosing to love. Nothing they did stopped his loving them. Not Jacob, not Israel, not the people here in Jerusalem. God loves you because he loves you. He chose you, not the other way around. And because that's true, his love is secure. It's not going anywhere. And I think this is the part that probably as humans we struggle with the most. Do we really trust his love? Do we really trust that it's not going anywhere? I've said this before, but I think it's important. And and so I'm just going to keep on saying it. Hopefully we'll all learn it someday. But the reason I think that... uh, I I think our sin has to do with doubting God. Our sin is, is, is... equally related to our doubting of his love. We sin when we doubt. When we forget his love, we sin. Uh, A a really wise guy told me one time, he says, "The, the places where we trust God the least are the places where we sin the most. That's pretty profound, isn't it? The places where we trust God the least, those are the places we sin the most. And so, you know, if we were to examine the areas of our lives, and we all have our favorite sins, and by favorites meaning the ones that probably uh, we struggle with the most. All of us are are different. Nobody has the same kind of sin patterns or sin struggles. They're they're all different. But if I sat down and I got to kept going, well, why? But why? But why? It would get to a, a place where we don't trust God like we ought to. 
And so some of us struggle with uh, relationships, trusting God in relationships. And so that's where we, you know, hurt those who love us and, 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 and all the things that we struggle with in relationships. Some of us have trouble struggle, trusting God with money, and so that's where we get into hoarding tendencies and, and building our fortunes and, and investing all of our money so that we'll be safe because it's really a struggle with how we trust God. Maybe some of us try to numb the pain and numb the guilt because we don't trust God that he can take care of them. So I need something else to numb it. Right? And this kind of works sometimes. Whatever that vice that we have is that, that we use to numb our pain and our guilt. Right? It's all about do we trust God, do we love, or, or, or believe that he loves us in the midst of all of that. And so we take matters into our own hands. That's really sin. So I would say God's discipleship, the sanctification process, it's really about us learning how to trust and rest in God's love. People who are being discipled, people who are in that sanctification process, that's what God is doing. Helping them learn how to trust and rest in his love. It's really that simple. Really that simple. And if you and I could just simply believe and trust in God's love all the time, we wouldn't struggle with sin. There'd be no worry, no faithlessness, no selfishness, no anger, no bitterness or unforgiveness. We could go on and on, but they all go back to, do I really trust that God loves me? And and, and the people in Malachi didn't. They said, we just don't believe that you love us. We haven't seen enough. We don't trust you, God. But I think the, the running theme of all 66 books of Scripture is this loud proclamation from God of how he loves his people and he will do everything to be faithful to them and perfect that relationship, including sending his son. And it's a screaming out, I love you. So I think of Han and Leah this week and, and their responses to say, I know, I know you love me. And I think of Anakin and we've all been there. God says, I love you. And we say, liar. I don't trust you with this. I don't trust you with this. So I'm going to hold on to those. God, you're a liar. I can't rest and trust in your love. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Which if you like Star Wars, that's what Anakin does, right? To his own destruction. When we look at the cross, we will look at this, this table that we have before us this morning. They scream out, and demonstrate God's love. They're proof of his love. Let's pray together. Father, there is nothing more that you could do. When we were your enemies, when we were sinners, when we were dead in our sins, you sent your very son to be mocked and, and betrayed and brutalized and murdered. to deal with sin, to deal with the thing that kept us from a relationship with you, that kept us from knowing your love, sin. God, in this moment, as we come to the table, would you help us remember the cross? Help us remember, remember what this table symbolizes as proof of your great love for us, proof that you would do anything for us so we can give our hearts to you. We can trust you with our everything.
Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.